are in still in John chapter 12. So uh, Kelly brought us up to about verse 35. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 35, we'll be reading through verse 50. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which reads, Lord, who has believed our message? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's for this reason that they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe only in me, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at that last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. Whatever I say, is just what the Father told me to say. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we trust and we believe that you are the light, that you are the light that has come into the darkness. Uh, we pray that this would be a morning that your light is brighter and brighter, that we see you more clearly, um, see you more evidently, that our attention and our awareness is on you. Uh, would you come have our way with our hearts? Would you mold us and to shape us into the people that you created us to be? We love you. Amen. The people of God, the Israelites, have been waiting for the anointed one, the one who would come and deliver them from their oppressors, establish them as the set-apart, obvious people of God who had received his blessing and who were endowed to rule with him. The scriptures and the law of Moses, as well as the prophets, have been leading up to and heralding the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah, Yahweh coming to save his people. At this point in history, however, after unimaginable exile to Babylon and now an exile of a different kind in their own land under the oppressive rule of the Roman government, 
Was it still conceivable that Yahweh would rescue his people? Could they still expect with confidence what Isaiah prophesied about? Quote, Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in this darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It is into the conflict of unrivaled hope set up against the presenting realities of the oppressing rule of Rome that Jesus steps in with these dramatic claims. The kingdom of heaven, it's arrived. Not only is Jesus speaking in this way, but he is also backing it up with signs, a hallmark feature, as we have learned, of John's gospel account. Up until this point, and even as recent as the past two chapters, we see Jesus doing many things. We see him healing a crippled man on the Sabbath, defending a woman who was brought before him for stoning, claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, healing a man born blind, raising a man from the dead, and then entering into Jerusalem heralded as the long-awaited king. Jesus goes even further than this, and he expresses what the implications are for his reign and his rule and his new kingdom that has come, in his words. Of his followers, he declares, you're the salt of the earth, and you, you're, you're the light of the world. You're like a city set up on a hill. It can't be hidden. If this is true, then why on earth did it all culminate in his crucifixion instead of unbridled acceptance of his claims? In regard to his followers, which he just spoke about, why has the way of Jesus and his church been pushed back against for 2,000 years? When learning that more than a quarter of the population claims a conversion experience, William Iverson asks, quote, a pound of meat would surely be affected by a quarter pound of salt. If this is real Christianity, the, quote, salt of the earth, where is the effect of which Jesus spoke? As we gather today, according to the Joshua Project, there are over 7,400 unreached people groups, which equates to over 3.3 billion people worldwide. This means approximately 42% of the global population are without the awareness and the understanding of Jesus and his kingdom. Within the Christianized Western world, it's more than 43% of people either have never been part of a church community and have no intentions, or they have been previously part of a church community and have no intentions on going back. Similarly, those who have no affiliation to any religious group at all, not even just Christianity, continues to be on the rise. This group, referred to as the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, has risen to nearly 20% of all U.S. adults. So why, in the language of John 12, why hasn't the light reached all the darkness? I think John chapter 1 summarizes the dilemma in this way. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. This light shines in the darkness, although the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I believe there are many reasons or causative factors that we could point to in, answer, in order to answer this question, this question of why hasn't the light gone to the extent, the fullest extent of the darkness. And in fact, there are many intellects, followers of Jesus, followers of his way and teachers much savvier than myself that in fact have done so, and I believe have done so in a way faithful to the scriptures. We could run this question through the framework of the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, which I think is an absolute valid way of thinking about and considering why the light hasn't penetrated all of the darkness. Um, but is there anything in this passage that we read this morning, John chapter 12, that gives us insight into the reasons that, to use the language of Jesus, the light is hidden? In short, yes, I think there are. Three examples, in fact, that have potential to snuff out the light. One, unbelief. Two, fear over faith. And then three, competing loves. Now, a word on each. Unbelief. In the narrative from John 12, we read in verse 37, quote, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Apparently, this is not a new problem, not one that shocked Jesus, nor his right, nor the writer John. He goes on then to relay the prophecy from Isaiah 6 concerning some of the unbelief. Let's read it again. This people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The Apostle Paul sees and recognizes this same unbelief. From Romans 1, verses 18 through 21, quote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For although they knew God, they decidedly neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is it any different in our current post-Christian culture? The statistics regarding the nuns are just the tip of the iceberg. An iceberg that growingly represents a stance not of, I can't believe, or... I want to believe. I wish it were true, but I, I can't because um, the objective facts, they, they just don't support it. But more blatantly, it's a stance of, I do not want to believe, or I wish this were not true. Paul said so much in Romans 1, what we just read. Nancy Piercy says it in our modern day language. When speaking specifically of the rise of Darwinian evolution and naturalism, she does not mince words, stating that it is not objective science, but personal philosophy. 
philosophy that has become the official orthodoxy in the public square. She says this, quote, much of what is packaged and sold under the label of science is not really science at all, but philosophical materialism, which is to say, it is not objective truth, but merely the expression of someone's personal values. Going further yet, even when examples of what evolutionists have heralded as empirical support for Darwinian theory, after these were debunked, this narrative continues to be propagandized because, as Nancy Piercy says again, quote, they desperately wanted to believe it. Hear those words. They wanted the alternative narrative to the true, to be true, because they desperately did not want the narrative of the Judeo-Christian worldview to be true. Or in the words of the nobleman's subjects from the parable of the talents, as told by Jesus, quote, we don't want this man to be our king. It's the same heart posture of what recently Mark Sayers has described as our culture, quote, wanting the kingdom without the king. But we have to reflect and we have to ask ourselves, is the church immune from unbelief? I would say hardly, especially in the West. This aforementioned post-Christian culture, we breathe in that philosophical orthodoxy that Nancy Piercy described on a daily basis. We too often have relegated life in the kingdom to salvation as a one-time event instead of salvation as a life, interactively communing and co-laboring with Christ in his kingdom. Most of us do not take Jesus seriously as an intelligent, fully competent teacher and Lord whose call to apprenticeship is not for abundant life in the hereafter, but is for the here and now. Dallas Willard writes this, Jesus is not just nice, he's brilliant. The fact is that our trust in him often stops when we get to the stuff of life, the minutes and hours of our real lives. We can trust him for his work on Easter weekend, but not enter into life of the power that is his kingdom. Flora Wooler writes this, quote, where is our Christ? who is alive and lives in power. In the preaching of our churches, he has become a beautiful ideal. He has become turned into a myth, embodying a theological concept. The witness to his objective reality has largely been lost. Most churches have never even heard of the prayer of power in his name. The church has become an organization of well-meaning idealists, working for Christ, but far from his presence and power. Next, we turn to fear. In chapter 12, verse 42, we read this. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. As this narrative in John 12 unfolds, we see what was commonplace in Jewish culture. There was a priesthood, a religious authority that established and maintained orthodoxy 
that would no less shape the community and the culture at large. They held the keys, so to speak, and to speak out or to go against the grain was social and political suicide. To be put out of the synagogue was for a Jew nothing to blink at. The synagogue, as an outpost of the temple, was a place where heaven and earth collided. This is not a heart of, oh, I wish it were not so. This is a heart of, I believe, but I think I'm going to stay quiet about it. Again, this heart posture is not a surprise to Jesus. In Luke 19, the parable of the talents, as mentioned previously, the noble man charges his stewards to conduct business on his behalf, in his name, so to speak as he went to a distant land to be appointed king. And remember the subjects, the, the delegation that went after him? Remember what they said. We don't want this man to be our king. This was the cultural context, full of hostility, in which the stewards appointed by the noblemen were to conduct business on his behalf. They, in that way, were associating themselves in the public square with him. And when he returns with full possession of his kingship, what does he commend two of the stewards for? Faithfulness. They made the cost-benefit analysis in their mind. One, fear of those who could put them out socially and reject them, or faith in the one who called them and appointed them. They chose the latter. We can appreciate a similar hostility to the way of Jesus in our post-Christian culture. We have an established priesthood that pushes the narrative on cultural orthodoxy, promoters of cynicism and skepticism, and what Paul calls anything that, quote, sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Many look at Jesus and hear his offer of healing and atonement. They even see his offer of good life, of the good life on tap. But there is another voice still that competes. And this voice says, but what if? What if I lose my job? What if my family pushes me away? What if I associate myself with Jesus and lose my financial security, my status, what if I am crucified in the modern-day people's court called social media? This may constitute many outside of the church, but I think it accounts for many within the church. Uh, I think I'm safe to go to this safe haven on Sunday mornings. But man, when it comes to the rest of my week, I think I'm just going to blend in. It would be better that way, right? Wouldn't want to disrupt the status quo. Wouldn't want to offend anyone. Lastly, we come to the third factor, competing loves. In verse 33 of John 12, we read this. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. There was a love, a desire in them that triumphed over any mustard desire for Jesus and his kingdom to be true. Or just to accept it. We can think back to Jesus' interaction with the man in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, to see an example of this. In this story, we see a young man 
who sees Jesus and what he is up to and says to himself, okay, okay, that Jesus guy, like, I can get down with that. Then he comes to Jesus, and he's calling him good master, and he's claiming to have always worshipped and served and trusted God above all else. Another way of saying it is he has, as he claimed, loved the Lord as God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. To help him understand the falsity of his declaration, Jesus gives him an additional commandment, one that would reveal to him the object of his true trust and worship, his true love. Jesus says, go, sell everything you have, then come, follow me. But because the man's heart, his treasure, his love, because this was indeed in the wrong place, he turned away. As Dallas Willard says, quote, For even though he sincerely professed to keep the commandments and had recognized divinity in Jesus, he had, so he had seen these things, he was unwilling to forsake his riches and keep the first commandment given, which was following him. It is in this context of competing loves that Jesus' words haunt us. And these words are from Matthew 13. It reads, Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Let's throw off everything that trips us up and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, setting our eyes, fixing them on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So if we go back to the previously mentioned, at the, at the very, way back at the very beginning, the previously mentioned triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we could see how these competing loves could be categorized under the flesh. Similarly, it's what Paul describes as the desires within me. Here, it's not so much of a question of unbelief or, oh, I wish this were not so. I do not want to believe this. It's not even fear. I believe, but what, what if? What if I fill in the blank? Instead, it's seed that, according to Scripture, it falls on soil, and the soil accepts it. It grows, but it's choked out by competing loves and desires. If abiding in Jesus consists of our awareness and our attention to the risen living King and what he is up to in the world, these competing loves are the desires that take our eyes and attention off of him. In my own life, as I look at my current stage of discipleship to Jesus and then look back over the previous years, I can honestly say that this, this is the thing, competing loves, that I have to vigilantly wage war with on a daily basis. If I think back to the middle decade of my life, which is my teenage years and college years, for any of you trying to do the math, the challenge to me at that time fully stepping into my status as a son of light was fear. It was fear of the other and what they may say or what they may think. Now, it's changed. 
It's a daily discipline for me to sit with Jesus and take an audit or to take inventory of all the things that I give my attention to. My desires that trip me up, that set themselves up against and distract my heart from unified surrender and delight in him. Over and over again, recently, probably over the past several months, in Jeremiah 3, I've been sitting on this verse, that surely the commotion on the hills and the mountains is a deception. It's a distraction. It's the Lord our God is where our salvation is. On offer to us is dynamic collaboration and participation with the alive king, fully realizing what he promised, that we would join him in being the salt of the earth, in a city, being a city set up on a hill, a candle that gives light to the entire house. And just as he reflected the Father, we would be like him and be children of the light. He said so much in John 12. So there's a question that we must ask, and each of us will answer this question differently. What is keeping the light from flowing through me? What is holding back the king and the kingdom from rippling out from my life? If you direct your eyes to the screen, uh, you will see, sorry if uh, your vision is having a hard time there. It's a Venn diagram. And, and, and each of the aspects of the diagram are the three competing factors we discussed in today's teaching. With the current question in mind, the question to ask ourselves is, where do you fall on the Venn diagram? If you could take a pin and stick it somewhere, where would it be? You may definitively stick the pin somewhere and say, whoa, that's me. So for me, it's like, oh, competing loves, that's me right there. But consistent with the overlapping nature of the Venn diagram, you may find yourself between a couple of the options. The purpose is not to come up with an answer, but to sit, reflect, and invite the spirit into the heart posture that David modeled for us when he says, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See, is there anything offensive in me? And lead me in your way everlasting. So there are some additional questions on the screen and some scripture that can kind of help the, um, the thinking and the meditation process. So if we just think about some of the questions next to unbelief, we can ask ourselves, where do I still not yet fully trust in his greatness and his goodness? And we can think about the man who comes to Jesus and falls at his feet and says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Or with fear, we can honestly ask ourselves, what fear is keeping me from following after Jesus? We can think about Jesus and the most common and frequently used imperative in scripture, do not fear. Or as Jesus says here, like, don't fear those that what, what at worst, what can they do? Kill you, right? Jesus says, no, your, your, your mind and your thoughts should be elsewhere. Your fear, you should fear someone much greater than that. And then the last question, if I could take an audit, this is speaking of competing loves, if I could take an audit of my week, where is my attention at? So if we look back over a week, what am I giving my attention to? Uh, it's not up on the screen, but um, something that 
um, something that I just read recently. It says, the first step in love is attention, is giving the attention. And so we can even think back to Kelly's teaching last week of just what does Jesus call us to? What is the imperative? Even as we just read from the writer in Hebrews, it is look, it is look to the sun. It's, it's, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a declarative statement of attention. Where are we looking? So um, let's take some time um, before we enter into worship to just reflect on those things.